my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I love to introduce our storyteller for today. Uh, it's Rick Landon, and uh, the thing I want to say about him is he is so gifted, just chock full of gifts, and I love uh, just interacting with him and being on the receiving end of his uh, really kind of profound thoughts on a regular basis. He's been a good voice in my life. So Rick, come on up. Tell us a story. Cue. So you're listening to my second grade class when I was teaching at Bellevue Christian, and that song was one of the songs that I composed for them to enable them to memorize their scripture verses. We did all of our scripture verses and all of our scripture memory and song that year. Well, my stories today are about women who have been agents of grace in my life. And it's been one of my anchors, that song, uh, in particular, when my life has gone into the what I would call the valley of despair. And that's not an original phrase with me. It's in the classic allegory, Hind's Feet on High Places. How many of you have read this book or even know about it? Oh, good, some of you have. The main character in this book is a shepherdess who is on a journey to the high places. When she reaches this crisis point, she's at a point where she's going to lose all the altitude she's gained in her journey. And with tears, she has to decide and does to trust the shepherd and continue the journey. And ultimately, it all makes sense. And she's rewarded in ways that she could not have foreseen. And I have experienced this, as you will hear. So during that year at Bellevue Christian, uh, the father of one of my students tragically died. As I later helped Jennifer, who was in my class, her mother relocated into a smaller home with her newborn baby, you can imagine the stress she was under, I opened a kitchen cabinet and uh, the door fell off. <laughs> and and um, I blurted out, can you buy me some wood? I'll build something that stays on the wall. And I did, and I didn't realize what was going to happen, that all the people coming to support her in this really difficult transition, not, many of them started calling me and saying, this is beautiful, can you do this for us too? And so suddenly at the end of that year, I was in a whole new career. <clears throat> I decided to quit teaching and become a cabinet maker. And there was a nice advantage to that because nobody taught me how to do it or what not to do. So I always had to learn from my clients what worked for them and not. And this has evolved to where I now design entire home remodels. And, and I said to Peter, I have spent my whole life making women happy. <laughs> <laughs> and even Peter, when he came here, I got involved with them in, in resolving some issues they had with the, the... Anyway, around the same time, I was reading Heinz Feet on High Places, uh, another agent of God's grace. This one real, Corey Ten Boom. How many of you heard of her? Good. She came to SPU, where I was getting a degree in chemistry. And, uh, yeah, chemistry, chemistry, you figure it all out. As I told in the book, uh, movie, The Hiding Place, <clears throat> her family was betrayed and sent to concentration camps, and uh, she never saw her family again. 
And even so, she said, every experience God gives us is the perfect preparation for the future only he can see. But she had to ask, and as I did it, points to my life, where is God in all of this? And then she holds up this tapestry. And it's a mess of knots and tangles. And that's how life sometimes looked to me. And she then told us she had learned to trust the weaver, and she turned this cloth around, and it's a crown on the other side. And when Cynthia and I went to Europe in 2011, we went to Harlem, which is south of Amsterdam, to see this cloth. And I have to tell you, I burst into tears when I saw it. I really did. It has meant so much to me, that image that in every experience our Lord is weaving, he is weaving testimonies to his goodness and his faithfulness. And I've needed that at times. Sometimes I've made a, my own mess. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Lord, how are you going to make a testimony out of this? And other times my life has been upended by someone else, like in December of 1990. I came home shopping for Christmas, and my three young children and I in tow, we opened the door of our beautiful brick home in Seattle and discovered the whole first floor of our house is empty. Thought we'd been robbed. It turned out their mother had moved out while we were gone. Uh, it's nothing to like hearing your children run through the house screaming, you know, where's mom, where's mom, where's mom? And I was stunned and I fell on my face on the living room floor on the rug and that image of that tapestry came to mind. And I prayed, Lord, how are you going to weave this into my life so that I see your goodness and faithfulness again? How are you going to make sense of this? And I'm not sure I could have handled, actually, the next several months of my life if I hadn't had that image of all the knots and the tangles and that it does someday make sense. Well, uh, two months later, you know, I'm in Bellevue, back in Bellevue, or I'm unpacking in a much smaller home, and I'm near my parents, uh, who continue to this day be a source of grace in my life. I'm so blessed that they're still with us. I found a church. I started to attend uh, with my children. I didn't know quite how to fit. There's no Sunday school classes for divorcees, as I discovered. So I was in the young people's class, but I wasn't young, and that was weird. One day, uh, a testimony, remember testimony, uh, one on two legs actually walked out of the sanctuary, moving quite fast. Something about her felt familiar. Uh, there was like this atmosphere. People have atmospheres. And I felt this atmosphere of grace and faith that I had experienced with my mother and grandmothers. And what did I do? I stepped in front of her. And uh, she was startled, of course. And and I said the first thing that came to mind, um, something that's not always a smart thing to do, as Peter has warned me. And I said, uh, please, give me your name and a quick resume so I know what to talk to you about the next time we meet. <laughs> Seriously, I said that. And uh, to her credit, she did. <laughs> and, uh, but she ended with this wonderful comment, I don't drink, do drugs, and I'm no basket case. And that's a good thing, because we've certainly had some intense valleys, especially with the kids. There I am. See, I used to have a beard, you know? It's good. Um, Cynthia and I were blessed and married 25 years ago now by Bud Palmberg. And uh, in the home of Greg and Sharon Andonium, some of you have been around a while, remember them. I've grown up in the Covenant Church, and I've been so blessed by that. And Sharon's son, Kirk, was in my second grade class. 
So some of these threads have been untangled, and we now have six grandchildren. Uh, and Cynthia, you have so infused my life with grace. Uh, there's always new knots and tangles, as yet we know we can. Hope, we define hope, we can trust the weaver. It's embracing the reality of my circumstances, knowing they're just threads in my tapestry, and on the other side, the knots and tangles will reveal his goodness and faithfulness to me. Thank you. So, good morning. They say to say, my name is Rick Landon, like you don't know that by now? <laughs> anyway, this morning our scripture reading is from the book of John. Uh, please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from John, the first chapter in the New American Standard Bible, in much the same way I used to do uh, when we competed in high school and college, at, uh, it was college back then, Seattle Pacific, uh, in the oral interpretation of literature. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. 
We are starting a new series in the book of John, and we're going to be in this probably through to the end of December, maybe into January, depending on how things go. So it's going to be a while, get settled in. We're going to think about the person and purpose of God in the form of Jesus, who is the incarnate God. And so the idea is that there is God, but nobody has seen God, just like Rick read for us. But if we get to know Christ, we have seen the fullness of God. And so the best way to get to know God, the Bible teaches, is through the person of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he said, what he did. And uh, do you remember uh, John the Baptist who came before Christ? He was uh, Jesus' cousin. He said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And I kind of feel like that about uh, our corp- uh, collective uh, sort of representation as Christians, as we represent Christ, there is a way as we enter into the book of John, I want to invite us to decrease, to have our assumptions decrease, to have our uh, historical knowledge decrease, and sort of let the uh, story tell itself all over again. And let this be a fresh sort of teaching and revelation about who Jesus really is. Uh, It's been my experience as I interact with non-Christians that Their arguments have primarily to do with Christians and not Christ himself. That they are stumbling on Christians. They don't ever get to stumble on Christ himself. Because things like culture and our opinions and the way we've sort of constituted ourselves as a people group, these things get in the way. Uh, Christian anthropologists would say that about 75% of what we call church or collective Christian life together is cultural, not theological. So there's a lot about Christ that's missed because so many things about Christians uh, get uh, tripped up over along the way. And I think this is uh, an opportunity for us to uh, think afresh about who Jesus is and who God is. And so for the next uh, several, several months, let's, uh, let's do that. I want to start with a couple of quotes, get those out of the way. Uh, this, all the sources are in the sermon notes uh, that you can access. Uh, but this is uh, called Getting Jesus Wrong. And a guy named Matt Johnson says this. Everyone has an image of Jesus they prefer. A Jesus who values what they value. There's tough guy Jesus. Wise, sage Jesus. Bearded, tattooed, skinny jeans Jesus. Khakis and polo shirt Jesus, suit and tie conservative Jesus, or social revolutionary Jesus. On a deeper level, our personal images of Jesus reveal that we think the Christian faith is about furthering our hopes and dreams, and that Jesus is the primary catalyst for getting us where we want to be in life. This reveals we're in love with all the attractiveness of power, influence, success, or possessions. And we call it being, quote-unquote, blessed. God works in ways that are the opposite of our lofty imaginings, it turns out. If we take the story of Jesus at bare bones face value, he wasn't a great success. God sent Jesus into the world to be born in a barn. He was born into scandal. He worked a regular job. He didn't study under a famous rabbi. He claimed he was God. Many people thought he was crazy or demon-possessed. And he was executed like a criminal. 
in our day and age, where only good things in life constitute being blessed, it would seem that Jesus was anything but. It's only by faith that we can grasp that God reveals his character on the cross. On the cross, God subverted everything we intuitively understand about power. Instead of demanding power for himself, God in Christ laid down his power and died for us. So that's Matt Johnson. And the point here I want us to walk away with is it's easy to get Jesus wrong. You know, I don't know that we would bow down and worship him if he were walking amongst us today. I think there's a good chance he would be labeled as something other than the kind of person we would believe is actually fully God. It sounds almost like an easy thing to say, like a broad stroke. But as I think about it more, I find this to be believable. That it's, I think it's more true than not that I would get Jesus wrong. And I have this thing called uh, confirmation bias, you know. I, I want my worldview to be right because my worldview serves me. And so I keep finding, proof texting, you know, the story of my life and what I experience to prop up my self-serving worldview. And Jesus may or may not fit into that worldview or serve my interests. And so I have this hidden motive to reject him. So that's uh, one guy. Here's another guy. And I'm not sure uh, this guy, Will Wheaton, is a Christian. Uh, but he wrote this. And this kind of represents a lot of what uh, people think about Jesus these days. He says, Canon Jesus was a brown Jew in the Middle East, conceived out of wedlock in an arguably interracial, if not interspecies, quote, I mean parentheses, deity and human relationship. Raised by his mother and stepfather in, a place of his, in place of his absent father. He spent his early youth as a refugee in Egypt, where his family no doubt survived initially on handouts from the wealthy. Jesus explicitly rejected the concept of disability as a divine punishment. He spoke out against religious hypocrites. He had enough respect for women to let his mother choose the time of his first miracle. He told a rich man that he must give up his wealth to get to heaven, and also told a parable about a rich man suffering in agony, presumably just to hammer the point home. He told people to pay their taxes. He declared, love your neighbor to be one of the two commandments on which all laws hang. He commanded his followers to help the poor. He commanded them to help the sick and the needy. He spent time with social outcasts. He healed a servant of a high priest during his arrest rather than fighting back. He was put to death by the occupying government because he was a political radical. Now, this guy, Will Wheaton, I think he has a political mo motive for writing it this way. So I'm not sure Will would actually experience an actual Jesus as God either. Because no matter how you frame Jesus, Jesus comes to you, stands before you, and he confronts you, the personal you, and is very free to contradict you. You know, not just Will or Matt, not just me, but I think all of us. He will contradict us. He will be distasteful to us. He is not going to be used to serve our interests. And so I want to know as I approach the book of John, who is God as he is fully revealed in the person of Jesus 
the Christ? I really think it's a fair question we ought to ask on a regular basis because we keep skewing, and regularly we need course correction. What was his purpose? What do his acts and words mean? Not just as interpreted through our uh, current situation now or our needs or our agendas, but who was he in a timeless way? And really, as it uh, relates to us, how, from what, and to what, and why are human beings saved by him? What is salvation? So we're going to get into a bunch of these questions over the next months. Today, I want to start with this idea of meaning, because that's where John starts. What is meaning? Why do we search for it? Why do we long for it? And how do we get it? You know, I, re- I remember back when the internet was becoming a thing, and I remember when I w- uh, was signing up my, for my very first email account. It was over at the University of Michigan on a system called Pine. Anybody remember Pine? Yeah, some of you. And then there was a Hotmail account, because that was the new hot thing to get. Anybody has, still have a Hotmail account? And then it was Yahoo. Anybody still use Yahoo? And then the world got swallowed up by Gmail. Um, But what kind of person are you when it comes to choosing usernames for email addresses? Because I would always want to be Cephas, because that Cephas is the Aramaic transliteration of the Greek for Peter. So Petra is the Greek, and then Cephas or Kephas is the Aramaic form of that. And so I like it. So my Gmail address is cephas at gmail.com. And I try Cephas for, with other companies, and it's taken already. And they always suggest something like Cephas 14 or Cephas 9. I'm like, no. I am a person with a high need for meaning. I can't have some random number assigned to my perfectly well-meaning username. It's got to be Cephas or nothing at all. Right? What about you? How would you measure your personal need for meaning in your life? How do you derive meaning? If it's not from your email address. And I'm serious. Some people sit there agonizing over even their passwords. It's got to have meaning. Some connection to who they are. On a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is like... I need meaning in everything I do. And one is, ah, I don't care. doesn't matter. Which one are you? I got an email from one of my sisters. It was her birthday recently. I had wrote her this, I think, a lovely letter. And she wrote back. I'm going to read you a paragraph from it. I feel very blessed to hit blank. She put her age there. With our family and me in good health and hyper-engaged in my work, I feel like I'm professionally really hitting my stride now, doing pretty much exactly what I was meant to do, which is connecting people to resources and being very bossy. (laughs) No relation to me whatsoever. So there's her meaning. You know, she feels hyper-connected to her work. It feels consistent, in alignment with who she is. She's been able to customize it, to really dial it in. 
And she feels like she's hitting her stride, her pace. And I think about my running, and that's a, that's a great feeling to feel like, you know, I can keep going. This is it. This is my clip. Have you hit that yet in your life? Because as soon as you think you've hit it, life throws you a hill or a curve. Things tend to happen. Well, here is John's take on meaning. And he says, meaning is truth. I'm going to reread these first four verses. In the beginning was the word. And this, this word, word, is the word logos. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And so here is John's kind of working definition and uh, sort of source for why we search for meaning. John says, in the beginning was this thing called logos. And the literal translation of the word logos is the word logic, sense. It makes sense. It's kind of what is. And another word that might fit in is the word reality. In the beginning was reality. And reality was with God, and reality was God. So that's a good word, a good substitution for that. Origin, source, the reason behind everything, reality itself. And so we are born not just randomly or out of our own volition with our own purpose in mind, but the Christian belief is, and if you're not a Christian, this is what Christians believe, that God really is the source, the foundation, the reality behind everything. And everything comes from this reality. Everything is a sub-reality of this ultimate reality. And so if you don't believe that God is, that he is ex existence itself, reality itself, you can't possibly find your meaning. It's like time does, the concept of time doesn't exist and you are a clock. And you keep going What's my meaning? What's my purpose? And people keep trying to tell you, well, there's this thing called time, and you tell it. No, I don't believe that. That's not true. What's my purpose? You can't understand your function, your place, without coming to terms with the idea of time. Because if you are a clock, you're just a sub-reality to the ultimate reality of time. That's why you exist. In a reality without time, you don't matter. You mean nothing. Your value is null. Not just zero. Null means it, it, it isn't. And so that's the first thing. And a word that I want to uh, bring in, because we, we get it later on, John's word for this idea of reality, truth, is the word, uh, is, is truth. That when we talk about things being true, it's not just a perspective. It's not just a paradigm or a construct, a way to re understand reality. It's not just your description of it or your feelings about it, but it's reality itself. Truth is a thing. It's not your truth and my truth. 
It's truth. You have a truth. You know, things that are relevant to you, things that are right for you or appropriate for you at this time. Our culture likes to express that by saying it's my truth. That's fine, but that's a sub-reality. Underneath it, there's an ultimate reality. What is? So again, going back to the clock and time metaphor, you can be your own clock. You can be a wristwatch. You can be a pocket watch. You can be a set of numbers on your phone. You can be an atomic clock. It doesn't matter. All of that serves the fundamental reality of time. And this is what the Bible teaches, that there is such a reality. And there are circumstances in life that push us to the brink to ask this ultimate question. I have a a friend, uh, he's in this church, he's working on a PhD. I don't want to give his name away, uh, because it's not that... um, uh, I'm going to just make up a name. I'm going to call him uh, Fake Ginefrock. He's working on a PhD for now, forever. And we used to regularly have conversations about his PhD. And he just always would ask, why? Why am I doing this? What is the purpose of this? What is the point? What is it going to get me? Why, why, why? And whatever it is you do, whoever it is you are, life will push you at some point to a breaking point, and you have to ask the question about ultimate reality. Why? Why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Does any of this mean anything? To what end? And it's not just when you really get pushed. It's not just in your own life, but it's beyond your own life. So what if it benefits me? I I will disappear. From dust I came and to dust I shall return. Is there value beyond even my here and now life? And if you haven't asked these questions before, you haven't been pushed yet, just wait. It will absolutely happen to you, no matter what kind of person you are. Whether you care about usernames or not, you will at some point ask the question. Maslow talked about this in his hierarchy of needs. Right now, you just worry about your belly, but at some point, you start asking questions about your soul. It happens. If once your belly is full, you keep moving up the hierarchy of needs. You want to know why. And so here is John's uh, part one of what meaning is. It's truth. Meaning is what is true. And the closer you are connected to actual reality, the more meaning you will experience in your life. And this is why in the book of John, Jesus is quoted as saying, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from everything. The existential crisis of existing sets you free from the searching and the yearning and the asking and the seeking and the angsting and the getting and the addicting and the agitating, all of it just stops once you know the truth. Once you are connected to things that are real, no more questions, no more grasping, no more lies, just truth at rest, at peace. 
That's part one. Part two is grace. Verse 5, 10, and 11 says this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive it. This is the paradox, the conundrum that we human beings are in. There's truth. There's reality itself that we need to connect to. We do. We need it. But notice verse 5. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The light is shining all around us. Truth is staring at us in the face. We're surrounded by it, and yet we don't get it. And then verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Right? Reality is Christ himself, and what did the world do? The world did not know him. He came into his own, meaning he made us, and those who were his own, what? Rejected him. Did not receive him. And this is the conundrum that we reflexively, intuitively, instinctively, subconsciously, implicitly, automatically, purposefully reject light. We reject life. We reject meaning. We reject truth. And this is what it means that we are fallen, that creation is broken. We are unable to choose or desire or pursue reality over the long haul. Scriptures teach that men have loved darkness rather than light. The Satan has a power over this world and he feeds, he's the father of lies and we somehow have become addicted to lies. I don't know if you believe that about yourself, but I do about myself. I have seen how prone I am to attach to lies. I feel myself driven by hunger, and yet I'm unable to appreciate the right foods because I'm addicted to illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. And that's why this passage teaches that the only way we can actually experience this truth this light, this life, is by grace. So we have verse 14 and 17. And the word became flesh. So here is logic itself, reality itself, has to somehow become flesh and dwelt among us. If reality was out there, and even though we are in it, if God did not become man and dwell among us, there is no way for us to actually experience the light that God offers. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. And then verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This word logos, this logic, it's not just truth, but it's grace and truth. Those things always have to go together for us. Truth all by itself 
is not valuable to us ultimately because we can't get at it. We reject it. We need a meaning that's not just true. That's not just some kind of nameless energy. We can't go out looking for it. We can't find it because ultimately it's a testimony of Scripture that we don't find meaning, but meaning finds us. That there's a kind of personal love aspect to reality itself. Now, I've made this point before. I would just want to make it again because this is sort of the cultural uh, way of understanding truth. You know, uh, one of the things I do is yoga, and I love yoga. But at the end, a lot of my teachers, they love reading things. They love sort of wisdom. And, and I lay there in my, you know, what they call shavasana, my, uh, you know, sort of corpse pose is what they call it. I'm lying there letting sort of reality and truth soak in. But they say things in a way that makes me feel like I have to do all the work. You know, I have to think about this and I have to do that. And I have to keep this in mind. And it's too much work. I can't do it. And I always think, I don't need truths. I need a savior. I can't keep pursuing that. I need it to pursue me. Okay, and the second example. I have lots of Christian and non-Christian friends. Tragedy strikes. And I, tell, I share with my non-Christian friends. And here's a kind of phrase they love to say to me. I'm sending my energy your way. And I'm always, I'm fine. I love that. That's good intent. Keep it coming. But I want to know, how does it get to me? <laughs> Go ahead. Right now, send me some love. Send me some energy. I don't feel it. <laughs> Try harder. I'm not trying to mock anything. But I just want to make the point the Bible teaches, there is such a thing as energy. It's light. It's reality, it's truth, it's meaning. But it's not just some nameless, impersonal force. It's a person. In fact, if you are a person, you are made in the image of the actual person. That's why you are a person. But we don't have the power to direct this energy. We are on the receiving end of this energy. And that's God. And that's his love. And it's the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Truth and grace are not just concepts or values or energies. Reality itself is not just a force or a power. But it's personal. And we call this personal energy that sees us and seeks us out and works for our good. We call this energy love. And ultimately, meaning is love. It's God's spirit. I was, um, I know you're going to get sick of these paddleboard stories, but it's the summer. It's beautiful out. And summer is the best, you guys. Isn't it amazing? So I was out on the water. I, had, I got gifted twice this, uh, this week. I was uh, out with Susie, sunset sort of paddleboard, and we saw three eagles, two adults and one baby flying together. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen a baby eagle in flight? They're ridiculously clumsy. But the uh, two adults kept coming back to it, just kept guiding it along. 
So beautiful. And then yesterday, I was out there by myself, and I was praying, and I said, God, give me a song. I need a song from you. I'm tired of picking all the songs. You make me a playlist. And I'm laying on my paddleboard waiting for a song to strike me, and I look up, and I see these birds. I'm, I'm a city guy, so I don't know, but what are those really big brown birds with the wings that cut up like this? Are those, uh, are those seahawks? <laughs> I don't know, but it's just, it's just so cool how their wing cuts up like this. And they kept trying to fish, and they kept making attempts. There were three of them, and they kept missing. And then finally, one of them dove, went in, and came up with a fish. And I just thought, you know, that bird, whatever the heck that bird is, thinks it's sort of its own reality. You know, it's making choices, it's doing its thing. But it's not the wind that's holding it up. It's not by the might of its wings that it's flying. It's by God's spirit. It's, it's God who created this beautiful creature, who taught it how to eat, how to hunt, how to fly. It itself deserves no praise whatsoever because it's the end result of reality itself. That's all God's doing. That was grace and truth in motion. And I heard sort of, you know, if you want to say God, say, that's you. You're just, you're struggling, you're angsting, you're asking me for a song. But don't worry, you're in my reality, you're in my grasp. I have created you. I love you. I will lead you. I will lead you home, Peter. That was, a, that was a really powerful moment for me. Okay. Application. I just have one application point for us. Uh, I want to invite you to listen to or watch this talk. Uh, Nicole Cliff is this really smart comedian. Um, uh, Harvard educated, started this really popular comedy blog, uh, satire, and then she became a Christian. She was a really outspoken atheist, and then uh, in the midst of her living life, converted herself, became a Christian, and she just has this really funny, integrating way of talking about her conversion story, and she comes to trust and believe that God is truth and grace. And the title of her talk is, Did It Have to Be Jesus? And this is all in the sermon notes, too, so you don't have to write it down. Here it is. Okay, you got that? Okay. Um, conclusion. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, dwelt, is a really interesting word. It doesn't just mean live among us. Or else uh, translators would have said that. But this word dwelt is the word tabernacled. Ancient word, you know what that means? That's the, that's the language of sacrifice. Where priests used to uh, sacrifice in this tent. And it says the glory of God dwelt or tabernacled among them there. It's hearkening back to sacrificial language. It means that the word Logos, logic itself, is itself, became flesh. And not just lived among us, but came to become vulnerable, to die, to be sacrificed, so that we can know grace and truth. It's at a cost. Somebody had to die for us to be able to experience grace and truth. And that's 
the story, the Christian story. We end with verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you that you are truth itself. But not just that, you are gracious in the way you save us into this truth, into this reality. God, it's our confession that we do angst and we're just agitated and yearning and longing and grasping for truth, for meaning, for purpose, for hope. And thank you that it's not something we have to go out and pursue and find, but it's something that finds us. So find us, we pray. Rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from the demise of our own meaningless existence. Connect us to things that really matter, things that are worthy of sacrificing our lives. And I pray that the lives we live won't just be uh, something we create, but it'd be bigger than us, something that we enter into and submit to and receive. May it be so, in Jesus' name.